friendly reminder that this is crowdfunding month at Canada Land. One month a year, we get really annoying and we persistently ask our listeners to support us. And then we don't talk about it for the rest of the year. I promise. Oppo is not supported by crowdfunding. All of our money comes from advertising and illegal gambling. But your money goes to support all the great work that Canada Land does, like our sister podcast comments or the investigative work that Canada Land does. So please go to patreon.com slash Canada Land and throw in a few extra bucks a month. And if you don't give, then I don't know. Maybe that lawn gnome on your front lawn isn't there in the morning. I'm not saying anything's going to happen. I'm just saying. Protect your lawn gnomes. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and throw in a few bucks a month. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Do you have a small business? Are you a freelancer? Well, FreshBooks cloud accounting software will make your life easier and save you so much time. With features like effortless invoicing, expense tracking, and late payment reminders, FreshBooks saves users on average 192 hours a year. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. When you start your 30-day trial, you get your first Audible book free. To learn more, just go to audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Okay. I'm Jen Gersten in Calgary, and I am trapped by a sick toddler. (laughs) Are you going to be part of our show, James? And I'm Justin Ling in Toronto, and I am quite cold this week. It's freezing. It's not as cold as it is out here, dude. That's true. Okay. This week, we've got a special guest on the show. We're talking to Lisa Raitt, former Conservative MP and former Deputy Party Leader. What a get for Oppo. We're going to talk to Lisa about why she lost her seat after 11 years in the House of Commons and why her party wasn't quite able to form government. And we talked to her about whether Andrew Scheer can keep his job. We still don't know whether or not he's going to stay, go, or whether or not he's going to muddle through for the next six months until voters kick him out. I vote for muddling. <laughs> Love to muddle. And finally, Lisa will explain to us why infrastructure is the cool thing that all the kids will be talking about this parliamentary session. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks cloud accounting software is invaluable for small business owners and freelancers like me. I have FreshBooks and honestly, I use it all the time. What I find most useful is the invoicing because you could just click on a little button, you punch in your client, you punch in your amount and boom, gone, send it off. And in 10 seconds, a really professional, nicely done invoice is sent out. And when you have these really classy invoices, actually clients take you more seriously and are more inclined to pay you quickly. Time tracking allows you to pay attention to how much time you're spending on a project so that you don't, you know, kill half your day on something that's not paying you well enough. It saves me so much time and FreshBooks on average saves users 192 hours per year. That's a lot of hours. Listeners like you can try FreshBooks free for 30 days. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That is freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO. So, 
Lisa Raitt is a conservative veteran and a familiar face in Canadian politics. She spent more than 10 years in the House of Commons, first elected as a conservative MP in 2008, serving as a cabinet minister and running for leadership. But Lisa Raitt won't be returning to Ottawa after this election. In fact, she's sitting right here with me in studio in Toronto. Lisa, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Your seat was in Milton, Ontario. Yeah. After 11 years, you lost it to, I mean, of all people, an Olympic gold medalist, yeah. Adam Vancouverden, uh, who took 48% to your 38.5. This is a bad news for you, but it's great news for, for us because I believe a lifetime of discretion uh, is now lifted and you could be actually candid about what you think about <laughs> politics now. That's right. I'm very clear now that I'm no longer the deputy leader, so I can give you the best analysis that I can. Excellent. Let's start off. What happened in your riding? Obviously, the Conservative Party picked up seats in parts of the country, not so much in Ontario, and your riding was kind of considered a battleground. Yeah, it was last time too in 2015, and I squeaked it out 2,500 votes. And it's a lot of the same that I heard last time, and it does focus around whether or not the Conservative Party is viewed as a party that um, basically people of different cultures can vote for. And what it came down to is a, a bit of a mistrust to the conservative brand when it comes down to whether or not they're going to be um, dealing with issues like Islamophobia. Do you think that you know lose, you losing your seat was that uh, because of that those broader issues around the conservative party and the trust around the conservative party, or you know was there a failure just on on terms of how you managed your campaign and are the things that you would do differently in hindsight? I felt we had the best run campaign that I've had in the four. And it was what we encountered at the doors, Jen. It was just the, the commentary that led me to know that it was, it was going to be not going in my way. I held together enough votes in 2015 to win. And the votes that I got were mainly from women, moms like me, kids in sports. And uh, they just disappeared in the last time out. And the demographics have changed. We had more people that actually showed up to vote because there are more people in Milton, fastest growing community. And all those things came together and we just, we lost. I thought it was interesting. One of the one of the things you said that was top of mind for a lot of people was Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. So you think that if you, if you were concerned about Islamophobia, if you're concerned about prejudice against any sort of ethnic minority or religious minority, that those people didn't put faith in the conservative party? I would say that definitely I got very clearly told to me on the doors that conservatives don't like Muslims. I was told that in my in my community. And it was something that we were trying to communicate around. And I did. Uh, I have wonderful friends in the in the community in Milton that took me out to dinners and brought me for teas and, and brought me to the mosque. But the reality is, is that because of old legislation from 2015, um, they still harbored, um, um, I'm not going to say a distrust, but they weren't clearly um, keen on on the conservatives because they were worried about how we felt about their citizenship, how we felt about them in general. And M103, which was a a bill on Islamophobia, we voted against it. I mean, not only did you vote against it, I mean, I don't think it was you, but certainly people in your party were conjuring up conspiracy theories about it. This was, you know, a backdoor way to criminalize free speech and all this. It went down some weird paths. I mean, are you the author of your own misfortune there? I mean, the Conservative Party was was allowing this sort of nonsense to go on. That's a good question. I don't know who the author of the misfortune is (laughs) or not. I I think it is misfortunate that we're not having as strong relationships as we should be having with all the cultural communities in our ridings. And I know that there are some exceptions. We have to do what we can locally 
in order to ensure. But clearly in the GTA, I, I think the relationships are lacking. And what I do know, because I've gone to the events for Canada Muslim Vote, which is an incredibly fantastic organization that seeks to increase the share of voting of uh, Muslim Canadians, they came out in full force. And I think they end up having a turnout rate, which is much higher than the average Canadian turnout rate. So they're they're an important part of the community to get in there and have discussions with and ensure that they can see themselves in our party. And that's what it came down to. I don't think they saw themselves in our party. You know, you, you referenced the legislation from 2015. Are you talking about the, the NACAB ban and uh, the Barbaric Cultural Practices Hotline, that stuff? No, actually, it was the one that Devinder Shori brought forward as a private member's bill that had to do with if you committed a terrorist act, that you would lose your Canadian right. citizenship. Ah. That was the one. That's the one that really um, pinballs around the, the communities uh, because the the spin that was attributed to it by, I would say, some some folks out there in opposition at the time was if your son is arrested for drunk driving, even though he was born in Canada and he's holding dual citizenship, he's going to get sent back to Pakistan. Mm. Huh. And that is terrifying. I mean, that would be terrifying for anybody to hear. And that's it's not true. The, of course, that's not what the vote would have done. True. But the, no. the fear or that the, the fear other, was yeah. there. The fear was there. And it was for me, that was the that was the bigger part. Look, and the other pieces coming together you know, in terms of uh, the NECAB, in terms of barbaric cultural practices, they certainly don't help. And, you know, Michael Cooper um, said what he said. Conservative MP Michael Cooper told a Muslim activist at the Justice Committee he should be ashamed of his comments about the far right. And then Mr. Cooper quoted from the manifesto of the suspected Christchurch mosque shooter. All of these things become something like confirmation bias, right? That's where they think something about the conservative brand and every little thing, even though it may be innocuous and not exactly what it's purported to mean or be, is taken as a piece of evidence that shores up their confirmation bias. Can I I suggest that the Conservative Party was sort of happy, at at least some strategists were happy with kind of playing both those sides, on one hand going to the mosque, meeting with, uh, you know, Muslim leaders, um, and and, and having, you know, earnest MPs go do that work, while at the same time, you know, suggesting a ban on the niqab for public servants, you know, kind of lending some support to the religious charter in Quebec, you know, playing up some of those anxieties that, you know, white Canadians feel about uh, Muslims and immigrants. But at the end of the day, you win your seat locally, and it's up to the local member to identify their community and make sure that you reach out to all the people in your community. And if there's a failure, I'll accept the failure that I did not. I did not get to a point where the Muslim community in Milton could give me uh, their vote. And um, that's something that we have to work on. What do you do to win those back? What you do is you have uh, serious conversations with them and you take a look at your local conservative association. And if you're in the GTA and you don't have Muslim members, then you have to go out and make sure that you find them. And on a national level, we have some fantastic conservative strategists and conservative members of the con- uh, who are Muslim Canadians and take them seriously when they say, don't do this. And you should do this. Have the conservatives failed to do that in the past? I mean, your senior strategist team is very white dude. Well, I can only look at what the results are. Clearly, we didn't have anything that spoke to and gave comfort to the Muslim Canadian community. So Lisa, I was going to ask, I mean, you're sort of talking about broad branding factors that have been in play in the Conservative Party for a couple of years now. If those were sorts of the issues that that, that killed uh, seats like yours in the 905, 
what blame can you put on Andrew Shear for the loss? You know, if if the problem isn't necessarily Andrew Shear, but rather the way that the Conservative Party is is perceived among a lot of communities, um, is that Shear's fault, and can it be fixed by kicking Shear out? First of all, I'm going to be very clear, regardless of whether or not I'm the deputy leader anymore, I fully support Andrew Shear and his leadership, and I would uh, I would cast my vote in that direction if I'm a, if I'm one of the um, delegates to the convention. Um, that being said, I really need to understand exactly what happened in the last election. I could be an example of an outlier riding where something very unique happened. Um, but maybe I am the norm for the GTA. And that's why I think that they've asked John Baird to go around and figure out what happened in the ridings that we were unsuccessful. And not only attribute, I hate the blame part, Jen. I know I never, when I was a CEO, I never approached things by trying to find someone to pin it on because that's not going to help you figure out the problem. So it's more like an autopsy. And, um, you figure out what happened to the body and you figure out how you'll avoid it happening in the next go around without <laughs> not a super generous blood. metaphor. For well, you know, it is what it is, man. But that's the that's the reality, right? You want to figure out what happened and then you let the cops figure out who to blame. But what I care about <laughs> is the forensics of exactly what happened. And that's, I think, where John Barrett's going to be extremely helpful. In my case as well, you probably had some other issues associated with the negative advertising that the unions uh, significantly throughout the GTA. And it just became too much. People just developed this point of view about conservatives and they went with the the devil they know. It's not just Islamophobia that the, that the party was battling against. There was a persistent sort of fear, I think, around abortion issues and same-sex marriage. And a lot of that was um, heightened by the fact that, to be blunt, Andrew Shear couldn't really give a good or straight answer when he was repeatedly asked about some of those issues. I don't know if you heard that at the doors, but I mean, it's it's striking to me when I talk to conservatives who are in Toronto and they say, you know, you can't win with this guy because of same-sex marriage. You can't win with this guy because of abortion. Certainly, we lost pieces of everybody in order to me for me to have that kind of a loss. So I lost seven points, and it's attributed to little bits of everything. Knowing my community the way I do, it's progressive women, it's uh, Muslim Canadians. There are three yeah. things that came together in this election that hurt me. Climate change was one. Progressiveness was another. We'll come back to you know, some of the concerns about Andrew Shear's ongoing leadership, but let's let's stick with the mm-hmm. campaign. The Conservative Party tried to put together a quote-unquote climate change plan mm-hmm. that a lot of people did not find credible as they were, as you folks were aggressively calling for an end of all carbon pricing in the country. Mm. Did that hurt you in the end? I believe that people who voted on the basis of climate change, that it was important to them, did not see our plan as being sufficient. And I think there was a significant enough number of people like that in the GTA that that plus progressiveness plus whatever else is happening in the community did eat away at the numbers that we needed in order to win. What I would say is this, though. If you looked at our plan compared to the liberals, there were some great similarities. The only difference really came down to the carbon tax. Yeah. And but the, that's a big difference. It is, but it's based... I know, but what really frustrated me is I come at the carbon tax from this position that a tax dollar going into Ottawa by no means is guaranteed to go to what it is intended for. And I've seen this happen over and over again in every department that I was ever in, that there's always lots of good intentions around what we're going to spend money on. And then there's always something that's a little bit more important that ends up sucking up the dollar. So I don't believe that a carbon tax 
would necessarily always be returned to Canadians right, or that it would be put isn't into... Isn't this why a cap-and-trade system... Is, and this used to be the conservative solution. This was Stephen Harper's very good solution circa 2009 or so was a cap-and-trade system where the government doesn't have to take any money. Everything's organized through a market. How is it that Andrew Scheer was so incapable... He, he seemed so doggedly fixated on crusading against it that he just could not pivot off of it. So still, the carbon tax has the also impact on people's pocketbook. And that's what we continuously heard. People are really worried about affordability and they're really worried about whether or not they're going to make ends meet. You see all these kinds of polls being done talking about they're 200 bucks away from from bankruptcy. It's a real live issue. So I assume that the the party and the people devising the platform thought that that was a winner. We saw it win in Ontario. We saw it win in Saskatchewan and Alberta. But this time it didn't because I did get at the doors that the carbon tax, especially in the urban areas wasn't necessarily that big a motivator. My base is always going to be motivated by that, by the carbon tax. But the people that we needed to capture the vote of, they weren't. Well, can I also suggest that there was a little bit of disingenuousness. If if uh, the federal backstop was applied, you saw that money returned to you. Like, I just got my tax returns back. You can see the line item where the government gives you the, the amount of money from the carbon tax that you paid in. So, you know, to have Andrew Scheer on the campaign trail saying, they're taking the money from you. You're never going to get it back. It's not credible, right? And do you think that maybe people started coming around saying, I know I'm going to pay the carbon tax, but I know I'm going to get reimbursed for it? Yeah. I don't know if that holds true forever, first of all. Sure. And what we saw in BC is it went from being revenue neutral to the government needing some of that money for another purpose. And we've seen liberal governments go into the EI fund in the past in order to balance their budgets. So those, as I said... Oh, when no, I, the conservative government did that too, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pointing it out. All governments. A pox on all governments. But you know what? That's a great point. A yeah. conservative government as well, which means that the advice from the officials in Ottawa is going to be, Minister, in order to make this work, mm-hmm. we're really going to just this once. We're really just going to use some of this money and put it over here. And that's the danger of a carbon tax. And that's what we ran on. But the the ways in which we were combating climate change were very similar. Technology, innovation, tax benefits for people who are either developing innovation, green innovation, or implementing it. We had that. The Libs had that. And there's a lot of commonality. So if I were to think about climate change going forward, my advice to the parties would be focus on what you can agree on and get on with it and see whether or not you can actually put together a plan that's going to help reduce emissions instead of fighting over something that we don't believe as conservatives is going to actually reduce the emissions. We don't believe it's going to change the behaviors. But, but on every, but on every modeling, every single model, it's that's modeling out there. based upon behavior, though, Justin. That's the problem, and the behavior isn't being changed at but the level. But everywhere we've had a carbon pricing scheme, it's works. But the level isn't going to change anyone's behavior. Nobody has changed their lives. Yeah, because but, of the carbon tax. But corporations have. I think corporations always were. And I think they they are going to be dealt with in a different way. And let's see what Jason Kenney does out in Alberta, right? Because he has approached well, it by applying it to the corporations. Yeah. I think everyone thought that's where Andrew Scheer was going to get to. Yep, and then it was did. never in the platform. Well, I mean, what was in you know, the, the, yeah. the, the very good modeling that was done by you know a whole bunch of very credible actors, mm-hmm. it had the Conservative Party's platform increasing CO2 emissions over time. Every other party got around the Paris targets. So again... To hear the Conservative Party say, we're the only ones with a credible plan, the Liberals won't actually get you to anywhere. And they won't, though. They won't at the price level that they're at, and they weren't being 
I don't think they were being genuine in in terms of saying how high it has to go according to the modeling. But uh, do you think that the the conservative line was always based in reality? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say it's going to cost more, the carbon tax will have to go up. The government mm-hmm. a- acknowledges that. Yeah. It's quite a different thing to say carbon taxes don't decrease CO2 emissions, which Andrew Cheer said time and time again. Mm-hmm. At a certain point that's lying. I I'm sorry, mm-hmm. it's lying. I don't think it's lying. I think what it is is him indicating that the way it's currently constructed. But I can't, you know, I can't explain for him, and I'm not going to explain. And that's the campaign that was lost. Yeah. Now, and I'm not pivoting, and I'm not trying to get off the topic. No, we should pivot, actually. (laughs) As a conservative, (laughs) as a conservative, only a grassroots conservative now, not as a member or not Mm. as... Not as anybody that's an official candidate. I will tell you, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a climate policy now. Yeah. I want to see it. And I want to make sure that people in the GTA who really carry a a whack of votes uh, are comfortable with the way that we're approaching it. And it balances the personal pain that you get from from making these changes with, um, with getting actual real emission reductions. What I would love to see from the Conservative Party would be sort of a climate change policy that takes nuclear into consideration, oh, yeah. that does market-based urbani- urbanization into consideration. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, to be honest, I don't yeah. think you get anywhere on any of those files unless you introduce some kind of market incentive like a carbon tax. And that was always sort of my position on the carbon tax is that I acknowledge that, at least what you're saying is quite mm-hmm. right, is that we, the carbon tax would need to be much higher in order to change the behaviors as much as we would want to change them. Um, however, you don't actually get the innovation. You don't actually get the incentive unless there's some kind of market tool there, a stick or a carrot, in order to make the changes that you want to make. The carbon tax has always been widely considered the most conservative possible way of of, of introducing jiggery-pokery into the economy in order to incentivize those changes. Yeah, I fully agree. Um, But where, for me, the demarcation is between what happens on consumers and what happens on businesses. And if you want to drive businesses, then focus on the businesses. And the the part that was hurting Canadians and that they felt was the impact of the carbon tax on consumers. So maybe maybe we can figure out our way forward, but there'll be, I, I know as part of this review that John Baird's doing, climate change is going to come up. I know it is. And uh, the party will have to respond. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. On Audible, you can experience books like Capital, Volume 1, a critique of political economy written by Karl Marx and narrated by Derek LePage. Ever wondered what all the hubbub's about, about communism? Well, what better way to learn than to listen to Marx's seminal work, the first volume which, anyway, narrated. It's a compelling read that underlies all of the deep rot in our capitalist economy that still rings true today. So why not sit back or drive in your car or do the dishes to the sounds of some sweet, sweet Marxism? (laughs) I love this book. What can I say? I mean, how else will you learn about Marx if not from Marx. The proletariat, or the bourgeoisie looking to get a leg up, can experience Marx driving in your car on the way to work as you head towards the daily grind of a capitalist economy. Or listen while you do your dishes, for free, because housework is still work. Nothing brings alive the words of Karl Marx more like narration, and narrator Derek LePage does a fantastic job of bringing the words of Karl Marx to life. 
Start your 30-day trial, and your first Audible book is free. Uh, the other two volumes you might have to pay for, but the first one is on us. You can learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. Doug Ford. I know that going into this election, there was a lot of fear among conservatives that Doug Ford was going to tank the conservatives' chances. I mean, wildly unpopular in Ontario. Um, you know, I've said previously that I don't think that he was as much a factor outside of Ontario as he was within Ontario. But was keeping him on the sidelines a mistake in hindsight? Oh, who knows? I mean, as I said, Jen, there's going to be a lot of poking over the remains to figure out exactly what would have helped better. Um but that being said, in my community, I definitely had the help of people who helped in the provincial election, wouldn't have been able to carry off my campaign without them, quite frankly, and had a very open and uh, public um, friendship with Parm Gill, who is the elected member of provincial parliament in my riding. I didn't shy away from, from that affiliation. When Doug Ford ran provincially, mm-hmm. I mean, I think his platform resembled Andrew Shears a bit. You know, it was a lot about changing the channel from what a you know the liberal government of, of the past it was it was not detailed in a lot of respects it le- left a lot of things to be determined later does this election kind of offer you some direction to say next time we do this we need to be a little more detailed and actually tell people yes we're going to cut this this will be privatized does that put the onus on you to run a more detailed campaign so we did that i mean andrew did come out and, and present in in the in the the entire platform um, exactly what we were looking at in terms of holding to a certain level, mm-hmm. not doing, not cutting back on on healthcare transfers or, or social mm-hmm. transfers. But going back to the Doug Ford thing, one piece that I'm always reminded of when I was sitting in cabinet during the Stephen Harper years, it was very clear to us that when there was a provincial campaign underway, cabinet ministers were not to go into the province that was having the election in order to not be seen swaying mm. the election one way or the other. So for Doug to not, the, for the premier to not be front and center during the campaign, wasn't that big a change for me. For me, that made a lot of sense. And I know a lot of hay was made out of it. The reality going forward is what you said is exactly the case, which is, was this an election run on emotion? Or was this an election run on policy and facts? Do we need to provide more information? Or do we need to tap in better to give people a sense of security and trust? Is it possible that it's both of those issues? I mean, it wasn't this time, Jen. I don't come away from that election thinking that the Conservatives put forward a lot of sort of broad visionary proposals or or positions. In fact, I think that that was, if I'm taking a very bird's eye view, I come away from that election just saying, I don't know what the conservative story was. I don't know mm. what their message really was. I don't know what they were really offering. Mm. And if they're not offering anything that I can put my finger on or identify, then why would I pick them over the devil we already know? Especially when you have these lingering questions over, um, you, you know, whether or not there's a hidden agenda or whatever. Yeah. And if I were to look at it in retrospect 2020, right, I would say that we came out with our universal tax cut. And then two days later, the liberals came yeah. out with theirs. We came out with uh, green funding technology. They came out with theirs. It was almost like we were bidding up the, the public. And public wasn't able to differentiate as between what one was giving, what one wasn't giving. And I would hazard a guess that in the GTA, because we heavily 
we heavily advertise the Green Transit tax credit. I'm going to bet you that there are people holding on to their receipts for 2019 thinking that whoever won is going to implement it because they don't see the difference. Because it's just that, you know, people don't always go to the polls thinking about tax credits. I mean, you folks were proposing bringing back the child fitness tax credit. Mm -hmm. When that existed, most low-income, middle-income families didn't use it. It was largely a vehicle for upper-middle-class rich families to... To reduce their tax burden. I mean, a lot of people who you have to count on to deliver, you know, government don't take advantage of those tax credits. They don't have fancy accountants or they, you know, yeah. they don't, you know, actually buy that much new gear every year. So did you hang a lot of hope on those tax credits when in reality they don't necessarily move that many people? Oh, they do move people. Okay. I'm going to disagree with you on that. And if you take a look at the census data and all the 905s, you're going to see that the the median income in these places is about $100,000 yeah, per household, right? So they are, they're squeezed. They're paying a little bit more in tax, but, and they'll take any penny that they can. They'll take any penny that they can because it helps them at the end of the day enjoy the things that they want as opposed to just getting the things that they need. And that's kind of where politicians try to tap in, that extra money, extra cash, and uh, recognition that putting your kids in these kinds of extracurriculars is a good thing to do. The conversation around leadership, the failure, the successes, it's a totally different one out west than it is in the GTA and the 905. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, since I lost, um, there's not a person who doesn't ask me, what are you guys doing on gay rights? Like, yeah. seriously, what are you trying to say yeah, about so let's, this? Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, you know, Andrew Scheer came out of that election with a lot of questions around him about whether or not he was going to stay on as leader. Um, obviously, just last week, you folks had a caucus meeting um, where there were rumblings that MPs would invoke uh, Michael Chong's Reform Act to spark a leadership review. Mm-hmm. Now, quite, obviously, they failed at doing so. Uh, any MPs who apparently tried, we don't know how many. Um, do you know how many? I do. I'm not going to tell you. God damn it. <laughs> It was worth a shot. Um, I, I was there for that part of the caucus. I left before they got into um, the dissection of the campaign because right. I didn't okay. want to be colored for any kind of conversation sure. that we have. Oh, you're I mean, only getting my you own have. opinion. <laughs> I know. I don't want to get accused. You should have recorded it. <laughs> um, and obviously, uh, there, there's a there, there will be a convention in Toronto, yeah. um, you know, next year where there is going to be a vote on his leadership that could spark a leadership review. We don't know how that's going to go yet. Right. Um, what do you make of the conversation about Shear's leadership? I mean, some conservatives have said, you know, this is entirely fabricated by the media. Others conservatives I've talked to have said, you know, there are real concerns about whether or not he could actually ever lead this party into right. into government. What's your take? My take is this, that back in May and June, after we witnessed what happened to Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott and the the prime minister's um, attempts to cover up what he was doing in SNC-Lavalin, most of the folks in the GTA are going, what the heck is this guy doing? Like, that is absolutely terrible. We're on Team Jody. We're on Team Jane. We believe them. We don't believe him. He's not telling us the truth. And that's where they stood at that moment. And our job as conservatives was to utilize that and move it along so that we could capture their vote. And we didn't. We didn't at the end of the day. And was it policy, like Jen says? I don't know if it was about policy. It came down to um, whether or not you were comfortable with um, the conservatives on whole. And they heard and saw things that they weren't comfortable with. And quite frankly, it started with abortion rights and boy, you know, coming out right out of the gate, Ralph Goodell releasing tape of a young 25-year-old Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons. And the second thing, you know, talking about people's opinions on abortion, that defined the narrative for a long time. And uh, I guess that's what our leader ended up dealing with over that course. So 
what it has left, though, fast forwarding, what it has left, unfortunately, is this notion that Canadians who don't follow politics closely, that there is a problem with the Conservative Party and equal rights for those who are LGBTQ and those who identify that way. Except for Michelle Rempel, because Michelle <laughs> Michelle Rempel is very, very clear. <laughs> I, I have to say that because I'll hear from her later. <laughs> um, you, you know, it, the SNC stuff I thought also was a huge lost opportunity. I don't think that the Conservatives um, capitalized on that scandal nearly as well as they could have. And, you know, I kept on waiting for Andrew Shear to come out and say, unlike the Liberals, we won't grant this corrupt company a DPA. Like, I kept on waiting for something like that, and I didn't see a strong statement like that. And I came away from the SNC scandal, and I think a lot of people did, saying, well, the Conservatives would have done exactly the same thing that Justin Trudeau Ugh. did. They're the same party. Would totally not have done that. Um, but we did say that we were going to do an inquiry into it and figure out and get those seven to nine people who weren't allowed to testify to come forward and testify. That still may happen because the opposition has control of the Justice Committee. Mm-hmm. So you never know Which what's going to happen. Which is going to be really interesting. But I mean, I, I was just waiting for the conservatives to say, like, make a clear distinction between them and the liberals by saying, we're not going to give the, the DPA to uh, SNC. It's not appropriate in this case. I would disagree. Or, or, or something of yeah. that nature. I don't think people cared about the DPA. This wasn't about that. This yeah. was about Jody and Jane. What people understood is that um, two women stood up to the prime minister and got tossed out. So so let, let's hone in on, on some of those social issues. I mean, you're kind of pointing out that, that people were concerned that a conservative government would lead to a regression of their you know, right to access from an abortion or their or LGBTQ rights. But can, mm-hmm. I, can I throw it at you that it's not necessarily a question of the conservative government rolling back rights. And I think this is what was wrong about Andrew Scheer constantly saying, I respect the law, I respect the rights as they are. It's that, you know, women who, you know, want uh, safe access, access to abortion and queer people don't just want the status quo. Like, they want things to get better. And when you say, you're going to get exactly what you have, nothing will get better, that's, it's a terrible yeah. electoral pitch. Yeah. And, you know, when I asked my kid um, about it, what he says is, he said, I don't know why you guys keep talking about same-sex marriage because, yeah. quite frankly, this thing was decided 20 years ago, Mom. Like, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Let's just move on. And that is what I'm getting refrained over and over and over again. People are assuming that there's a fixation that we have as conservatives on this issue. And, and clearly we don't, but it was introduced. And it was our job to deal with it appropriately. And quite clearly, we haven't dealt with it to a point that it's still an issue. To some extent, I know a lot of conservatives are angry that Sheer keeps on getting interrogated on this particular file, but he's still failed to give us a good answer. And what's the answer, Jen? Oh, seriously, like, and I'm not being I'm not being negative about this. I mean, what what is what will be enough? What does he well, have to I, say? I, I, you keep on getting the impression, and maybe this is more of a tone than an actual word, okay. set of words, but I keep on getting the impression when I hear him talk about this, that he doesn't really believe it. Like, he's saying, okay, well, I, I'm not going to litigate on these issues. I believe that, right. but he won't actually give a clear answer as to what he actually believes yeah. and why. And I understand why, because if you're a, a devout Catholic, you know... You actually do believe that homosexuality is a sin. You actually do have a problem with same-sex marriage. Well, some devout Catholics think that. I would almost rather him be candid about that and just be honest and then say, look, I'm a Catholic. I don't believe that same-sex marriage is appropriate. But look, my job as a leader is to X, Y, and Z. Right. And when he refuses to like march in the pride parade, you know, he, he, he makes people uncomfortable because the 
he's not just representing his own personal beliefs as leader of the Conservative Party and potentially as a prime minister. He's also representing the Conservative Party. So when he refuses to march in a pride parade, what does that say about the Conservative Party he's representing? And I think the Conservative voters know exactly what you're saying. And a lot of them are saying it themselves. And I think that's why you're seeing so many people coming forward and saying we're looking forward to April to have that vote on on leadership and going from there. And it's going to be an interesting six months. No question about it. Um, I know where, where I line up on it. I line up on the fact that we have to do everything we can to ensure that we communicate that this is the big tent and that's what we're supposed to be. You, know, you asked the question of what answer could he have given. Mm-hmm. It was really jarring to me the fact that in the conservative platform, there actually was a bunch of language on LGBTQ rights, but only for people outside the country. Right. There is language about queer refugees and then no language about what happens when they get here. I think if Andrew Scheer came out and said, listen, I'll be really blunt with you. I'm a a Catholic and I still can't reconcile my faith with same sex marriage or as I like to call it marriage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I do want to I don't want to just keep things as they are. I want to fight for, you know, I want to make sure that hate crimes against LGBTQ people not just go down, but end altogether. I want to make sure that all LGBTQ people have the right to quality health care that actually addresses all their individual needs. Um, There's nothing about saying that 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 contradicts his Christian beliefs. So what kills me is that he's still incapable of saying that and that. The party seems to be confident that if he just keeps repeating what he said during the campaign, that eventually we'll move on and that it's all the media's fault. Well, we're going to see if the party agrees with that last part. And do you think ultimately that would be the thing that that pushes the party over the edge to say, listen, you can't keep doing that? I think your argument about the fact that we didn't have language in there along the lines that you talk about is a compelling one. I think it's a compelling argument that if we're going to make sure that we're speaking to all people in this country, that we put in issues that are important to them. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is something that we have to do going forward. I'm sympathetic to the idea that just going to the parade is, is pandering a bit. But Andrew Shear talks to individual communities all the time. He goes to individual events and picnics and parades and stampedes and all this. Like, why not this one? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, to look at that guy and say, I'm comfortable voting for him when he's not comfortable with me. Yeah. I go. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps we're no longer in a world where Canadians will accept a socially conservative leader anymore. Getting away from the question about whether or not that's appropriate or whether or not that's fair, I think that that is the question on which Andrew Scheer's leadership will hinge. And I've been noodling on that because the the whole blackface, brownface thing that happened this summer caused me to think about that as well, because Trudeau received um, lots of forgiveness on it and lots of excuses were made, but it came down to the same fundamental thing. People just fundamentally didn't believe that he was racist based upon his past actions, right? The way that he behaved as prime minister did not allow them to think that when he put on brown face or black face that he was actually being yeah, he also owned racist. It. When he got called out, he I mean what, well, you say, what, you, say what you will about the apology. Ah, at the very least at the very ah, least he was willing to come out and say Well he did a great job hiding it for twenty years. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred percent. But what I'm trying to say is this is that Jen, I don't know whether or not this means that no social conservative can ever be prime minister. I don't know if that's what it means. I think what it does mean is if a social conservative individual wants to be prime minister, they're going to be able to have to give the Canadian public a comfort level. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. That's it. Like Justin gives people who are racialized a comfort level that he's not racist. He gave that to them in whatever way he did it. He gave that to him. So he was 
allowed. He may be an idiot, but he's not a racist. <laughs> well, <laughs> we say idiot, Elries, idiot. <laughs> but that's kind of where my head is on this because I don't think it's necessarily. Um, I don't know if it's that quid pro quo because we could be surprised by um, a great social conservative leader now or in the future, maybe could be Andrew Scheer one day, who proves himself to be uh, someone that all Canadians can can rally around. I've seen a lot of conservatives complain that uh, we've really you know, latched on to abortion and LGBTQ issues around Scheer's leadership. But I get the impression that there are MPs who are upset about other reasons. I, you know, I've heard some complaints that towards the end, some of the numbers that Scheer was trying to throw at the prime minister felt a little bit desperate. You know, I, mm. I heard that the campaign didn't always um, prioritize local concerns. You know, were there other things that you think are going to be a risk for Scheer going forward? I believe that a lot of MPs like myself are going to have, and candidates are going to have a lot of individual local reasons why they believe the campaign didn't go their way. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that also that this campaign was run on a macro level and that it did come down to whether or not which leader you were going to be more comfortable with. And it ended up with a tie. We had a tie. Yeah. At the end of the day, and to the, the tie ended up going to the incumbent. Lisa, what do you think that Andrew Shear needs to do right now if he wants to continue to be leader after April? Mm. So I, I, I want to start by saying that I've not advised Andrew on this at all. Um, Maybe you should. No, my <laughs> <Yeah>. role, my <laughs> role, was to give him the facts and analysis of what happened in my riding and what I think happened in the GTA. Uh, as far as him moving forward, in order to confront that vote that is coming. He has to do what he did to win leadership. He has to go out and meet with people, and he has to give them comfort that there is going to be uh, a majority government for the Conservatives in the next election. Because I can tell you something, in that 34% that we received from Canadians, they are really ticked off with Justin Trudeau. Like, they are really ticked off with him. And that's a high level of, uh, of anxiety about having another Liberal government for however long it's going to be. So there's high expectations that the next time out, we must win. So whatever leader is going to be in there, Andrew or whomever else, there is going to be even more expectations on them to win in 20, 2022, whenever this 20, thing will happen probably. again. Uh, when's the uh, Ontario election? Or sooner. Or um, sooner. Or like in six months, whatever. But, uh, no, uh, not on the, six months. On the, on the whomever else... Um, obviously, there's been rumors that Peter McKay has either knowingly or unknowingly been organizing. Um, you know, there's obviously some people waiting in the wings. Have you heard? No, I haven't heard any. Are you running? No, <laughs> okay. no, um, no. I don't think anyone is seriously out there organizing to run. Uh, I do believe that, and I do see it on on social media that there are people out there who are organizing to have a a negative vote on Andrew's leadership. Right. That right. is happening. Whether or not it's morphing into this is the person we believe should be the next leader hasn't happened yet. I think it has to happen, and I'll tell you why. One of the biggest concerns that a lot of conservatives have is, well, if we get if we get rid of the current leader, what's going to happen now? Like, who's yeah. next? And we're in a minority, and what are we going to do? So, you know, do you stick with the person we know that we can run in the next election, or do we take a chance of seeing what's out there? So I do believe if, uh, you know, if I were counseling anybody thinking about running, although people say those who put their hand up shouldn't have blood on the knife kind of thing as you're as you're taking out the current leader, the, the reality is is that unless people see an option or an alternative, yep. they're, they're going to be um, more 
predictably voting for status quo. Lisa Raitt tells Peter McKay to run. Headline. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Anyone out there. There's lots of, I'm sure there are, there's lots of interest. So Lisa, when we were talking about uh, you coming on the show, I asked you, you know, what do you think we should be paying attention to um, in the next few years? And you said something that I would have never guessed. You said infrastructure. Tell me about that. Why do you think that infrastructure is going to be something that we're talking about? Well, Jen, in the last two weeks, as I've attempted to figure out where my next job will be, I have had lots of conversations with people who are involved in projects here in Canada. And the question that I keep getting from folks in, in finance and in banking and law and construction is we know that there's a lot of money for infrastructure. We know the government has to do infrastructure in order to keep the economy rolling because it's good uh, stimulus, but we have no idea where it's coming from or even what's going to happen or how it's going to happen. And that uncertainty is kind of put us all in a, in a holding pattern. And Announcements are being made, but the economy is out there waiting for a real sign from the government. The next infrastructure minister, if it is somebody who is not strong, it's a bad sign for the economy. I think there's something very weak about the liberal infrastructure planning in general. The, the whole philosophy, I think, really does rest on them sort of sprinkling money into a bunch of local projects that you know ultimately don't create a bunch of permanent infrastructure, but then throwing huge wads of cash at kind of bigger uh, projects, even before they're fully conceptualized. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, whatever. That's just not a way to run a government. And the, the signal to the investment community is we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. So if you throw in a really good minister in the infrastructure place and you give a mandate to the president of the Treasury Board to push the money through, then I think companies can take comfort in the fact that we're going to build some infrastructure. Otherwise, I uh, I worry about the economy. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Where, where, didn't the liberal government supposedly spend a ton of money on infrastructure after the last election? I mean, wasn't that the whole premise under which we were going to be running uh, these limited deficits? didn't spend it. That's well, the point from the yeah. uh, the folks that I'm talking to here in Toronto. It, they don't see the projects. They don't see it coming down the pipeline. If I can go really wonky for just one second, I'm actually really curious about this. Mm -hmm. um, under your government and under this government, the whole strategy has been, um, we'll take a, you know, this huge pot of federal money and we'll put uh, little envelopes next to each uh, individual project and we'll hope that the province, the city, and a whole bunch of private developers get involved. That works really well in Quebec, where you have the Caste de Depot. You have a whole bunch of kind of kind of, kind of private money mm -hmm. that, that will invest in these projects. In the rest of the country, um, the private developers often aren't showing up to partner with government. Mm -hmm. you know, do we start any rethinking mm -hmm. how we do these projects? Because um, a lot, the Auditor General has been, the PBO have been writing for years, basically saying, this isn't working. Yeah, there's a lot of money out there that people want to invest, no question about it. The government should be involved in big projects like that, and the areas to do it are in airports and ports and in rail. Truly federal jurisdictions mm -hmm. that are not impinged by any municipal bylaws or any municipal issues that you may have to get around, but are welcomed by municipalities. Three projects that the Liberals announced that I really hope that I see, and that has to do with dedicated highways in and out of the ports of Halifax, Montreal, and Vancouver, huh. so that you're getting the trucks off the local roads. Mm. think they're brilliant. Mm. I hope they get done. But again, no companies are hearing any steps to make sure that the RFP is going to be let, that Treasury Board is comfortable with it. The bureaucracy in Ottawa can choke this thing like a python. At the risk of uh, forcing you to sound like a socialist, 
at a certain point, <laughs> shouldn't the government just build the damn thing? But the government's the government's still got to hire these companies in order to build it. Yeah, even but if you contract. You don't try to partner with them. You contract. Them. And that's where that's where it works, right? Yeah. They, that's ex- and it's not being socialist at all. It's using the agencies of the government to, in order to make sure that it's being built. That's it was by no mistake that during the recession, the Harper government sent the infrastructure money out through the ports and airports in the country. Mm. Because they were they were arms of government business enterprises of the government and had a better streamlined way of, of flowing those funds, but but getting money out of the federal government is very very difficult. So Lisa, what are you planning on doing now that you're out of parliament? On a personal level, um, having more contact with my kids in their lives oh, as opposed to them being part of my life. So um, I've forced my way onto my son's basketball team. He's not thrilled, <laughs> but I am now the Are assistant coach. Oh, you're coaching. Okay. I'm the assistant not, okay. coach, which doesn't really do much, but encourages from the bench as opposed to the sidelines. Um, so that's one part of it. But the other part of it is I am looking to do something that gives change. Uh, I, I want to do something. I don't want to go out and, and do uh, advisory capacities. I want to build. I want to create. I want to do. I've got a lot of experience that I think can be utilized, and I want to put it to good use to continue to drive our country forward. Hmm. Just get paid better for it. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. This has been enlightening. I wish you all the luck, the best luck in your post-politics career, or temporary, temporarily post-politics career. Now look at my face, Justin. <laughs> Permanently post-politics yeah. <laughs> career. Okay. When look when when you replace Andrew Shear, it'll be. Oh. We hope to have you back uh. on the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's the sound of despair. That's it for Oppo this week. Tell us what you think. Email oppo at canadalandshow.com or tweet us at oppocast. And you can go and like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, you should rate us and you can leave a review. You can enjoy gems like these. Quote, I like the personalities of the hosts and enjoy the show somewhat. But between Justin Lang mindlessly puking Liberal Party of Canada talking points and Jen theatrically playing up some kind of cowboy troll effect, there's nothing whatsoever to be learned here. Blah, the middle class. Blah. Blah. And those looking to join. <laughs> Thanks, Tom Rad. At least he likes us as people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, somewhat. A fan's a fan. Uh, or enjoy this wonderful review from uh, Rye Drums, which sounds like a, a whiskey distillery. Uh, quote, Enjoy the less extreme banter for both Jen and Justin trying to be combative, but really just compromising with each other because that is what sane people do. Keep up the good work. I didn't read this before. I thought it was going to be mean, but that's actually a really nice review. I actually appreciate that. Rye Drums. We, that's very nice. We, we, we try to get along as human beings. I love you, Justin. Love you. <laughs> I love you, too. This episode was produced by Laura Howells. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and theme music is by Nathan Burley. A reminder that this is crowdfunding month, so please go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand and throw in a few extra bucks a month. I have the last word this week, and that word is patience. That's actually nice. 